Please take a Bible, if you will, and turn to the letter of 1 Corinthians there in the New Testament. It's page 952 in these Bibles from the pews. I want to bring some messages from the book of 1 Corinthians. I'll not go through consecutively through the entire book, but today we'll be looking at the first nine verses of chapter 1. The past four Sundays, though I've been here in town during the week and, and working Barbara and I would go to different churches in other cities, and um, somebody has asked me, why, why do you do that? Well, being a pastor, um, I really never get to go to other churches and, and worship. Um, it just, it, without pressure of some sort. And so I also go because I like to see how they deal with newcomers. And we walk in as a newcomer, and I try to think, can I figure my way around this place? Can I, do I have an idea of what the next step would be? And that's always a challenge, especially uh, in a church like ours, where uh, the, the date of the construction and, and when things have been added on through the years. And so we are grateful to have such a staff here, and Andy here to preach, and being an effective, uh, exceptional preacher, and and to be able to leave like that uh, and thankful to the session uh, for the past uh, four uh, Sundays to do that. But I'm glad to be back with you today. Uh, my voice is a little weak, so if it cracks, it's not because I'm overcome with emotion that I'm getting to see all of y'all, though I am very grateful for that. But uh, I uh, kind of strained it earlier this morning, not, not yelling at, at anybody or anything, but <clears throat> uh, just coughing real hard. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. I'll tell you the background after I read this. But here are the opening words says Paul wrote to this church that he had founded probably about four years before he writes this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, come now before your word, and it certainly isn't made such by us or by our interpretation of it, but it is your word revealed to us, and we ask now your Holy Spirit might speak. In Jesus' name, amen. I heard a story about a year ago of a, a man who was traveling in the Midwest in an area of the country where he'd never been. He was in a very rural area. There weren't many houses around on this two-lane highway. It was in the heat of summer, and he, he got a flat tire. So he, he's by himself. He pulls off to the side of the road, and he takes off his sport coat and his tie and he goes around to the back of his car and he opens up the, the trunk and he takes out the spare and he takes out the jack and he comes around and, and then he looks up and he notices that he is he has stopped right in front of what used to be called an insane asylum 
and three of the men that are in the front yard walk up to this fence that's about 10 feet from where he is. So he's, they're not saying anything, they're just looking at him. So he's very conscious. He gets down and he, he's conscious of their presence, but he gets down and he takes off the, uh, he jacks up the car, he takes off the lug nuts, and, he, and he's putting the lug nuts in a, in a hubcap. And he pulls off the flat tire and he puts on the spare. And when he reaches for the hubcap, he inadvertently kicks, kicks the hubcap with the lug nuts and they go down a ditch, down a drainage pipe. They're gone. And he goes, oh, no. And he says out loud, now I've got to walk into town, buy some lug nuts and come back out and put the tire on. And one of the men standing there at the fence who hadn't said anything up to this point is looking at him. He said, you know, what you could do is you could go around to each of the other three wheels and take one lug nut off of each of those, put it on that one, drive slowly into town and buy some more lug nuts and you'll be fine. <laughs> and the man stares at him and does a double take and he, he gets down and he, he puts the lug nuts on and he does just what the man suggests and he lowers the car down, puts this bad tire back in the trunk and he gets ready to drive off and he, he comes walking over to the fence and he says to him said you know uh, that was really pretty bright what you just told me and the guy goes look I'm in this place for being crazy not for being stupid <laughs> now when I heard that last summer it hit kind of hard close to home but we live in a world where those of us who follow Christ are viewed by the culture as crazy and stupid and I'm using the word stupid there as that we believe things that have no reason to be believed, that we're ignorant. And crazy from the standpoint that we believe in someone we've never seen. We pray to a God that we've never seen or touched or heard verbally uh, talked to. And that is what was faced here by these Corinthians. They, they lived in a culture like that, as we do. One of the books I've been reading this summer, along with several others, is is Oz Guinness's latest book called Fool's Talk. And in the very opening of that book, he says this, Almost all our witnessing and Christian communication assumes that people are open to what we have to say, or at least are interested, if not in need, in what we are saying. Yet most people quite simply are not open, and not interested, and not needy. And in much of the advanced modern world, fewer people are open today than even a generation ago. Indeed, many are more hostile, and their hostility is greater than the Western church has faced for centuries. Isn't that true? There's not, there's not a receptive, there, receptiveness that was even prevalent when I became a believer back uh, 40, 40 years ago. Now it's uh, antagonism. It's... Uh, it's it's a hostility, as Os Guinness describes it. And that was also true in the city of Corinth. And so I wanted to bring some sermons from this letter because we can relate to the very issues they were dealing with. Uh, here we meet a church that was facing questions like, how do we handle disagreements among God's people? When those of us who claim to follow Christ severely disagree with another believer, how do we handle that? What does the Christian sexual ethic look like when the order of the day is promiscuity and sexual immorality? Uh, how are we to relate to that? How are we to live in a culture like that? In what ways does a culture shape the institution of marriage? Uh, that's dealt with here in 1 Corinthians. 
So those are some of the reasons. I would, there are many other issues that, that will come about in time. But let me tell you a little bit about this city. Because geography and context has a lot to do with ministry. Uh, even in the, the churches we visited the past few weeks, uh, one in Alabama, one in South Carolina, uh, three in Atlanta, every location had great bearing on the ministries of those church, churches. And it's, it's always that way. Context is almost everything as far as how ministry takes, takes shape. Uh, Corinth was no exception. I was trying to think how to communicate this, and I know many of you have studied 1 Corinthians. You know this book better than I do. You have probably, you may be studying it right now in a Sunday school class. But if you're not familiar with it, let me tell you about the geography of the city. It was in Greece, in modern-day Greece. And so if you think of Greece, you know that it's an isthmus that goes down into the Mediterranean Sea. So envision Florida, if you will. And so it, it goes down, but with this isthmus uh, of Greece, in the middle, it would be like a belt was tightened, and it gets about that narrow, eight miles, and then it, it got big again. So it's kind of like an hourglass. North, then small, small uh, isthmus there, and I'm sorry, it's a peninsula, the whole thing, and then you got the, the southern uh, part. Corinth sat right on that isthmus that was eight miles wide. So any travel... Any merchants going north or south in that country would pass through Corinth if they were going the length of the country. Now, in the 146 B.C., the Romans leveled it to the ground. They raised the city. But 100 years later, Julius Caesar decided he wanted the city to be rebuilt. And so around 45 B.C., they rebuilt it. And there was a population of about 100,000 people. There And it grew and grew. And because of its location, uh, it, it grew rapidly. And there was great wealth there because there was lots of business there. There were people from uh, all over the world. Uh, there were people from all cultures there, various languages, various religions, various backgrounds. And so it was a conglomerate, you might say, of cultures and religions from, from all over the world were there in Corinth. Outside the city was a high mountain or hill, really, like pretty much like Stone Mountain in Atlanta. And on top of that hill was a temple built to a goddess named Aphrodite, the Roman goddess of love. Housed in that temple were hundreds of temple prostitutes. That was part of the worship. And that's one of the reasons that Corinth had a reputation at that time in the world of being just an immoral, wicked place. And if you were from Corinth, that's how you were viewed. I guess their commercials today would say what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Um, so that was a little bit about, about Corinth, the city. If you want to read how the church started, and, and please don't do it now, but you go to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17, and it tells us how the Apostle Paul uh, went to Corinth. I mean, that tells you a lot about his church planning strategy. That might have been a place somebody would say, you know, why don't we go to a little bit easier place, a little more receptive place. Let's don't go to Corinth. Paul went to Corinth around the year 50 A.D. He led some people to Christ. It tells us in Acts 18 that one of the persons that he led to Christ was Crispus, who was head of the synagogue, head of the Jewish synagogue. Not only Crispus believed, but his entire family believed. And there was another man who was a leader in the synagogue whose name we already read, Sosthenes. 
he also came to faith in Christ. And in Acts 18, he's taken before the authorities and beaten because of that. Uh, so Paul stayed there. He, he evangelized. He trained leaders. He established the church. Now, they would not have had one building in one location. They would have met in houses. And each house church probably had as many as 50 people in it. Uh, but Paul planted the Corinthian church, and he stayed there a year and a half, 18 months. Next to Ephesus, it was as long as ministry. When he left Corinth, he went to the city of Ephesus, and he stayed there three years. Now, here's the reason for this, this letter. And by the way, this is not, 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. And uh, the reason I say that is in 1 Corinthians, he, he refers in chapter 5 to a previous letter he wrote to them. That letter's been lost. We don't have it. That should be of no concern to us. But he refers to it, so really 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. Now, he writes this for two reasons. He was getting oral reports from people that were traveling to Ephesus, which was not that far away, and they were major cities, so there was frequent travel, and you could send mail, and you could get word pretty often from one city to another. He was hearing that there were divisions, they were divided, and spiritual gifts that are supposed to unify us were dividing them. Some were saying, well, I'm allegiant to Apollos, who was a great preacher, teacher, and philosopher, and apologist. I'm allegiant to Paul. I'm allegiant to Christ. And he's hearing about these divisions and some of the things going on in the church, and he's very disturbed about it. The second reason he writes this letter is they had written him a letter, and they had asked him to address several issues that I've already mentioned to you. Marriage, immorality, spiritual gifts, the Lord's Supper, a variety of things like that. So starting literally from verse 10, where we're not getting to today, forward are the issues that he has heard about in the church and they have written to him about. And he's going to deal with those. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit about the background of Corinth and why we have this letter. As I mentioned, he came there and he planted the church. And in verses 1 to 3, he gives a normal greeting. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. He identifies himself as an apostle. Now, literally, that, the word means one who is sent, like a messenger. So I hear you take this message to that person, and uh, it's an apostolos, an apostle. <clears throat> what Paul is referring to, though, is not in a general sense of how all believers are sent with the gospel. He's talking about how he had the office of apostle. Now, our understanding from the Bible is there were only 13 people that have occupied that office. The original 12 disciples became the apostles. Matthias replaced Judas in that original 12, and then Paul was added after his conversion in the book of Acts. So we have 13 that held the office of apostle. You can open up your newspaper on Saturday and see church advertisements, and some churches will say we're pastored by apostle so-and-so and her husband so-and-so, you know. I mean, that, that's often how it, it looks. That they, if they mean it in the same way as this, they're wrong because there were 13 apostles that held the office of apostle. And he says, he reminds them that he holds this office not by his own will, not by his own designs, but by the will of God. 
In fact, he, if you remember, with his conversion, he was a persecutor of the church. He had been there and highly condoned the, the killing of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith, and then he's on his way to Jerusalem to, to see that Christians are in prison and, and thrown in jail, and he's dramatically converted on the road to Damascus. And, and he never forgets that. God commissions him to take the gospel. And he reminds them of, of this office because they were questioning him. They were questioning his authority. And he reminds them, look, it's not my authority. It's what God has called me to do. I'm an apostle by God's will. And he also mentions there in the opening verses Sosthenes that I, I mentioned to you earlier. Well, in the moments we have, let me just give you a few observations about this church. And these won't be in depth, but I hope that you will read 1 Corinthians in advance and afterwards and, uh, and so that you'll be more prepared to, to hear some of this. First, it was a church, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. That, that means those who are set apart. The word church. The word church means a called out people. Uh, the church in Corinth were people that God had called out of this world. Uh, each church has two addresses, you might say. First Presbyterian Church has a geographic address. We're in Macon. But then it has a spiritual address in Christ Jesus. And Paul reminds them they've been sanctified. That means they've been set apart. And so every believer is a saint. Uh, that's not just reserved for certain believers. Even the most unknown, lowly Christian in the world is a saint in God's eyes. And Paul calls him a church even though there's a lot of sinful behavior there. I mean, it's really remarkable. He all, he's really writing to try to deal with problems, and they've been doing some really, really sinful things. And yet he starts off, and he, he's complimentary. In verse 4, he says, I give thanks. And he, and he calls him saints. And what I really love about this is in verse 2 where he says, Call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a, uh, he had a, he had a global vision. Paul did. I mean, Corinth was one place. We ought to think about what's God doing in Macon and what's God doing in our middle Georgia and in and, and our state and in our country. But what thrills me is by having a world vision and keeping up with what's happening in the world. And with the resources on the Internet, it's easier than ever. Uh, but you think of, like, Fuller School of Missions out in California that track demographics all over the world of the spread of the gospel. Operation World, you can go there and there's a country to pray for every day and it'll give you the demographics of that, that country. And we'll use that. We'll use some of their information at our prayer gathering this afternoon. But let me tell you something encouraging that some of you know about, but most probably do not. You know where the gospel, the gospel is spreading the fastest? If we pick one country where it's spreading the fastest in the world today, Iran. The country of Iran. Now, if you know the history, in 1979, there was a revolution there which established a hardline Islamic regime. And so for the next 20 years, from 1979 to 1999, Christians faced persecution, opposition, missionaries were kicked out of the country, evangelism was outlawed, Bibles in the Persian language were banned, several pastors were killed, and... Under such pressure, many on the outside watching were very fearful that the small church would be just wiped out in Iran. But in God's providence, just the opposite has happened. 
Today, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. Now, how did that happen? There are two factors, and they're very important factors. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime and has led many Iranians to question what they've been taught about their beliefs. But second, many Iranian Christians have continued boldly, even at threats to their lives, to speak out and to tell others about Jesus. Now, as a result of that, are you listening? If you don't hear anything else, hear this. As a result of that, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries. In the last 20 years, the church, the body of Christ in Iran, has grown from an estimated 500 people in 1979, today where it's between 800,000 and a million. 20 years, roughly. 20 years. I said 1979, I meant later than that. From 500 to almost a million. Now, the second country where the gospel is spreading the fastest and increasing will also surprise you, Afghanistan. Why? Because the Iranians in Afghanistan speak a very similar language, and they are witnessing to their Afghani friends. And, and according to Operation World, that is the second fastest place where the gospel is spreading. Now, not proportionally. I'm not saying proportionally it's the fastest, but as far as numbers of people coming to faith in Christ. Now, when Paul said that call to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus, we should pray for our brothers and sisters there that face great opposition and persecution, even as they pray for us. So in verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks always for you. He reveals his pastoral heart. And I have to ask, why in the world was he thankful? Why doesn't he start off and say, here we go again. Y'all are up to it again. Man, you barely get the church started. Now you're fighting and divided and practicing all these things that are bad. And, but he doesn't. He starts off with a positive note. He's very grateful. He was able to do so because he saw them as God saw them. I give, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He loves them because they are recipients of God's grace. When we get on each other's nerves... Hey, can we, can we talk? I mean, when, when we're ornery with one another, when we're short with one another, when you say, you know, I don't really like that guy, or really, I really don't like her, or she really rubbed me the wrong way, or, or whatever it might be, how can I love this person? You, you know, I, when I don't feel like it. You have to see them the way God sees them, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's seeing this church that he planted that has all sorts of problems in it now, and they're even questioning his authority. The guy that led them to Christ, many of them, he says, I give thanks to God. He starts off, I give thanks to God for you all, for his grace that was shown in, in your life. Uh, our daughter, Rebecca, is doing a one-year internship at a church in Atlanta. And she got a dog before the internship was agreed upon. Now, I, I like dogs. Uh, we even have cats. So before you jump to any conclusions. But guess what happened when she moved to Atlanta to do the internship? Guess who got to keep the dog? Well, we got to keep the dog. We have to keep the dog. 
And the dog's still a puppy. It's a big puppy. It's an Australian shepherd that runs and barks and chews and digs and whatever else, Barbara, you could add to the list. And, and, and I'm through with the dog phase, I thought. I mean, we went through this a lot. We had, I had dogs growing up. I loved dogs. And then we had dogs when our children were small. But the last one bit a, a neighborhood child in the face. And it could have been really, really bad. And it required stitches. And this was 15, 20 years ago. And we said, we are finished, finished with dogs. So I thought. So now here we are doing all this. Feeding, shots, vets, all this, tearing up the backyard, tearing up the screen, you know, all this kind of thing. And so you think, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you showing compassion to the dog? Because our daughter loves the dog. (laughs) That's our only answer. Our daughter loves the dog. Why is Paul being so nice to the Corinthians? Because God has shown grace to them. And when you and I have disagreements and differences and and sin against one another, the only way we can love each other is because God loves you, I love you. Because God loves me and he's shown his grace to me, you should show grace to me and show love to me. Uh, Let me move on. It was given, this grace, it says in verse 4, in Christ Jesus. I've mentioned to you before, but it's it's always important to understand. And and if you're not a Christian here today, here's what the the message of the gospel says. Believe in Jesus. But the word in there is interesting because it can mean into. So if I walked up to you and and you said, uh, now how, how do you become a Christian? Well, you believe into Jesus. You believe into Jesus. Here's what I mean. If you walked up to this door from outside, and you came off Mulberry Street, and you came up those steps, and you walked up to the door of First Presbyterian Church, and you would say, uh, somebody could say, well, let's go into the building. So you would step inside the door and come in here. You would have come into the building, but once you are here, you are in the building. We believe into Jesus, and once we believe into him, we are in him, and he in us. I in him, and he in me, and the Bible And theology calls that the mystical union of the believer with Christ. So they have that mystical union. They are in Christ. Uh, And it was, verse 5 says, it was a wealthy church. It was enriched, meaning with spiritual gifts. God had richly blessed them. It probably was one of the most gifted churches of that day. Gifted with teachers and with all the spiritual gifts that we'll get to later in the book. They were there among that church. Uh, It would have been an impressive group from a spiritual gift standpoint. Then he says it's a church that's waiting for Christ in verse 7. That they are waiting for his appearing. You are enriched every way so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus. Now, waiting can be a negative term. Some of us have dreaded type waiting. We're waiting on some ominous news. Or we're, we're waiting for something we don't look forward to. Uh, but then there's positive waiting. You're going on a trip you're looking forward to. And yes, it's three weeks away, but as each day comes, you're thinking about it. And you're, you're preparing for it. And so you're waiting, but you're waiting with anticipation. As we wait for Christ, it's not a dreaded waiting as we wait for his return. It's an anticipatory waiting. We're preparing for it. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, said, It is the character of Christians 
that they wait for Christ's second coming. We believe it and hope for it, and it is the business of our lives to prepare for it if we are Christians indeed. Could you say the business of my life as a follower of Christ is to prepare for his return? Apparently that was true of the Corinthians. Then he says in verse 8, it was a church upheld by Christ that, that who will sustain you to the end guiltless. This is a faithful God. God's faithfulness will never fail. Think of all the reasons you and I are unable at times to keep promises. And that we, we fully intend to keep them. We tell someone, I will be there that day when this happens to you. And then you can't keep your promise because your car breaks down or you get sick or someone's dependent on you and your circumstances change. And we have many reasons that are beyond our control for why we can't keep promises. God always keeps them. He is always faithful. One of the characteristics that's often written about of the younger generation today, whether you want to call it the millennials or a little bit older group, the Generation X, and don't take offense at this, but if you are such, but is that a long-term commitment to them is five years. That's it. I mean, that sounds like an eternity. Uh, some of you uh, older people here, you thought commitment and you thought lifetime, 30 years. You went to work for a company or something like that. And one of the reasons for that short-term thinking, they say, people say and have observed, is, is often they've never seen a long-term commitment kept. God will keep it. God is always faithful. And if that's true of your life, if you were abandoned or you, you were forsaken by someone that you counted on, God will always be faithful. He will be faithful. He will take you home to heaven. Those I'm, I'll be 61 this year. I want to finish strong. But I've got to be honest with you, it doesn't get any easier. If you think, well, I'm going to hit a point in my Christian maturity where it's just going to kind of plane off and I'm going to coast from that point on, let me know when you reach it. Okay. I haven't seen it. I've told you before about this man. I don't know his name, but I remember watching news reports back in 1988 when there was a huge, devastating earthquake in Armenia. Thousands of people died. A lot of remote villages were hit. And there was one remote village where a school collapsed and it trapped the children inside. And you can only imagine the panic as the parents ran to the school and they began to claw and dug with their hand, dig with their hands through the rubble. Grieving parents came. After 24 hours of working with their hands, trying to dig down in the rubble to get to their children, hoping they were still alive, hoping they might could find them. Some, after 24 hours, some of the parents gave up hope out of exhaustion or demoralized they fell away but there was one father one father who outlasted them all he never stopped digging he got heavier equipment into the second day finally they were able to punch a hole into some concrete walls and so forth and a person could be lowered down into the hole and they called out this man called out for his son and a weak voice answered and his son, along with many of his classmates, had been trapped or saved by like a place that had been made in the rubble where some things lodged together and they had a small space where they were all huddled together. When they emerged from the hole, the son was heard to say to some of the other rescued students, I told you guys not to cry. I told you not to worry. 
I told you my father was coming for us. My father said if anything ever happened to me and I was in trouble, he would come and find me, that I should just hunker down and wait, and that he would come for me. I knew it, Dad. I knew you'd come, Dad. I tried to tell him. We have a heavenly father, and, and he's going to come for us, and nothing's going to thwart that. He's not going to break his promise. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He is always on duty. He's the one who has said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a world where we have a hard time even knowing what's truthful when people say something and, and uh, what's, what's manipulative or unkept promises or promises that are never intended to be kept. We are grateful that you are promise-keeping God, that you are faithful, uh, even when we are faithless. And may our trust be in Christ and in him only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.